Hey everybody, this is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman back for the 161st Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom call. This will be the last of 2023. We're going to be off the next two weeks, which is Christmas and New Year's. And we'll be back with you in January of 24 when we start to make a, a desperate uh, all-out sprint to save American democracy. Um, uh, Donald Trump seems to think that it's uh, to his advantage to run promising a fascist state. <laughs> I guess, you know, he's something that maybe he knows something we don't, but we have a full, full program today. We're going to talk, I start in Florida, as we often do, where the Democratic Party has decided they don't need a primary. Talk about uh, getting rid of democracy. Also um, trying to abort the uh, referendum on abortion. We have a ton of stuff coming from Ohio, which uh, you, as as we say, you couldn't make up. We are then going to have, uh, thanks to uh, Camilla Reese, a really uh, professional and detailed um, discussion of digital addiction with a real expert. That'll come at the first half hour. Uh, in the second half hour, we're going to go do more deep diving into the um, uh, political situation, and we're also going to have a poet. We have never had a poetry reading on these calls. And I think uh, with the end of the year coming up, it's appropriate. Me, my friend Mimi German in um, Portland, Oregon has written some very powerful poetry uh, to deal with the wartime situation. So um, uh, as usual, a tremendous uh, two, two hours and 20 minutes coming up. Steve Cruz, I want to thank you so much for saving the day here. Uh, we've had some technical challenges. Only 10 minutes late, not bad in the world of the Greep Zooms. And I want to compliment uh, Dr. Nancy Naparco on her choice of Michigan sweatshirts. She will be in the Rose Bowl. We should probably get live coverage. <laughs> there you go, of the uh, upcoming game with Alabama. And I want to congratulate Joel on the uh, uh, rare victory of the Panthers yesterday. Good work, Joel. Um, I saw your pass catching was really extraordinary. So we have here a great group of 41 people to start. Um, and uh, we're going to start... As we often do, um, you know, it's amazing that our our three engineers and, and co-hosts that work with me, I'm in California, um, are in Florida, Ohio, and D.C. It's like we couldn't have picked uh, better locations for our people. Wendy, you um, are in the middle of what can only be described as utter lunacy. And um, Tell us what the Democratic Party of Florida has done, please. Thank you. And I have um, Carolina here as well, who's going to know a lot more about the, the innards of it, as she did run for the chair of the, the Democratic State Party, who has decided that um, Biden's the only qualifier for the um, the ballot. They're, he's the only one they're going to put on the ballot. So we're just not going to have a primary in Florida, even though Marianne does qualify. She has a large enough following and, and the funding and everything that needs to um make it to the ballot and so you're talking, about, you're talking about marianne williamson marianne williamson yeah yes. so she's she's not pulling an al gore and she's actually um standing up and and seeing what um she can do because i mean this the, the precedent that it sets where we're literally just saying that the party dictates who the candidate is going to be without even input regardless of viability or what the polls say or the projections we the voters still should have a chance to be able to have the function of electing who we decide and i mean now they don't even have to do what they did to bernie by just taking away the funding 
in a very shady manner and, and maneuvering behind the scenes. They're just outright blatantly saying Biden's the only guy and that's who you get. And it's like, well, what happens if anything happens to Biden between now and then? Like, do they just appoint? Like, I mean, Kamala is not very popular among people. So they just going to appoint her. What's what's Gavin doing, you know, debating DeSantis and kind of like dancing around everything here? Like what what's what's going mean for the democratic process when we don't well, even get to vote? You know? Well, it's astounding. Florida is what the fifth largest state in the country and um, uh, and the Democratic Party, we have a two party system and one of them has decided not to have primaries. I mean, this is yep. I think it's unprecedented. In America, yeah, it's, it's astounding. Yeah. Um, uh, did you want to have Carolina speak? Carol is, Carolina is from inside the Democratic Party. I, I would love that. And I, I just want to preface it and introduce her by reminding everybody from a few months ago, Carolina, she's the president of the um, Democratic Progressive Broward, Democratic Progressive Caucus of Broward, which I'm on the board and she's the president. She was the Democratic Progressive president of the state caucus and resigned in protest of the former um, Democratic chair because of his inaction in the last election where they just basically opened the door to the extreme right. I mean, it's a war on the progressives and then they did to her when she ran for the chair to fill his seat when he finally stepped down, they did to her what they did to Bernie. I mean, I just met somebody randomly when I was petitioning who now works for the Democratic Party and she didn't even know that Carolina was a qualified candidate against Nikki Freed and Annette Tadeo. I mean, it's and okay. if she was in office, we would not be facing this. Thank you, Carolina. Thank you, uh, Carolina, from the inside. And you'll have to be brief because we've got a really stacked agenda. But th this is a staggering. And you have to remember, everybody, these calls began in April 2020, came straight out of the movement to protect uh, for, of election protection. Our basic issue when we started these calls was pan counted paper ballots and and the protection uh, of of our democracy, I can't imagine at this stage anything more anti-democratic than a major party, uh, one of two major parties, canceling their primaries and anointing a candidate uh, who's uh, 110 years old. I mean, come on, go ahead, Carolina. Okay, so so this happens because of a modification of a rule that they had in place, but it's always been that the that the state executive committee, which is all of the the state committee men and women from every county of the state meet on and and also the DNC members and some officers they meet and they are supposed to approve the 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 primary. But usually it used to be that whoever was approved federally it would automatically qualify and and unless there was something major happening. Uh, you always had that that situation. Well, this time they held the meeting in a smaller room where even if the the entire committee was present, they would not even be able to fit. And they held the meeting one month prior to the closing of the of the application period. So that all shows a lot of bad faith. And many of us have been fighting now. So the board of our Broward Progressive Caucus joined the Miami Caucus and also the, the Duval Caucus, where Jacksonville is. And we challenged that. Uh, we are also going to be challenging legally. So, so we're going to, to be pushing for that. The only one that has submitted a lawsuit is Dean Phillips, because as you know, we have four candidates. It's Biden, Dean Phillips, Schenck 
Lure and and also Marianne Williamson and and Marianne has also been challenging the the DNC and the FDP uh, that's the Florida Democratic Party as well as Schenck. So okay, so is, what we will what we will do what we will do, uh, Carolina, and thank you so much for that. Uh, we will uh, track down Marianne Williamson. We were supposed to have her. I've known her for years. She's great. She actually introduced the book I wrote, and she's going to. Um, uh, we will get her. She was supposed to be here earlier this year, and we had some scheduling difficulties. But I will make sure that in January, Marianne Williamson uh, gets on here, and she'll meet you, Carolina, and uh, we will make sure that this connection is made. That I mean, it's just staggering, and I think this is coming from a Democratic National Committee as well. They are uh, encouraging states around the country to cancel their primaries. You gotta be kidding. I mean, really. Yeah. And then they're running on like we are the party of democracy <laughs> yeah, by canceling primaries. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> now the second issue, and I, as you can tell, we got a ton to deal with today. The second issue in Florida is the abortion referendum. And my understanding is that Wendy, you've been out uh, gathering signatures and getting yelled at and all that stuff. Uh, but and my and I, my my understanding is that there are sufficient signatures now to get this thing on the ballot. But the uh, to, to coin a phrase, the legislature is trying to abort the anti-abortion, the, abort the abortion re referendum. Is that correct? And what are they doing? And it is correct. Ahead. Thank you. It is correct. And um, I, I like I know Ashley Moody, the state attorney general, who's you know on just the just on the side of Ron DeSantis, who's also like very close friends with the head of the Democratic Party, Nikki Freed. Um, she's challenging. Um. I'm not sure exactly what the terms are. And I know you had sent me something I've just been recovering from all the yelling at and not working as much as I've been doing. So I did fall a little bit behind, but it's no, it's like none of this is a surprise to Florida residents. It happened when I worked on um, Amendment 4 to get felons their rights back. I mean, it, resounding support um, from both sides and it was squashed by the legislature. So now they're trying to undermine the qualifications of it, just like they're doing in Cop City, which hopefully we'll get to talk to. But um, we got 1.4 million signatures. We needed just over 900,000. So they're basically trying to um, disqualify whatever they can and find whatever jargon that they can pick apart and ride on. And we're just going to have to see what happens. But remember, when a petition gets approved, to even start collecting, it needs constitutional review. And anyone who has started referendums in Florida knows from the jump that they need to be on point with their legal phrasing and everything, like every dot needs to be hit, every T needs to be crossed, whatever you want to call it, because we know what we're up against and how this is just going to be dissected okay. surgically. So, yeah. Of course, the last, referendum, the last referendum that came through Florida was to qualify ex-felons to vote and the, it passed overwhelmingly, and the legislature went in and ripped it to pieces, essentially demanding that um, uh, that the ex-felons pay enormous, almost, often undisclosed sources of money. They, they were going to say, they, the legislature said, okay, the, the, the voters have voted, and ex-felons are allowed to vote. However, they have to pay fines, and we're not going to tell them how much they owe. I mean, that's basically yep. what they did. And had that not happened, you're talking about 1.2 million voters uh, who were disenfranchised. Uh, Ron DeSantis would not be governor of Florida. We wouldn't be dealing yeah. with this zombie fascist here. And, and don't uh, forget, I'm sorry, Harvey. I, I, like in the, 
Thank you. And and don't forget that they went around arresting people, like elderly people in their homes two years after they voted, after registering with the state. They had to get registered with the state to get their rights back, went out and voted. And then two years later, before an election, cops show up at their house and take them to jail. When I worked on that petition campaign, I can tell you straight up that everybody was for it. The most conservative people. I mean, because we all understand it's rooted in Jim Crow. It's just not fair. And what they did is they actually went in and added that language like you're saying to that now they there's this condition that they have to pay these like just arbitrary fees that they can't even track down there's no database to keep track of who's qualified there's no way for these people to find out so i suggest people follow florida rights restoration coalition because they're working hard on it but they, they literally took something that was a constitutional amendment passed by the people and just played like word soup and word scrabble with what they right, want to do doing the same thing uh to two things in ohio uh, the, the voters of Ohio just passed two a double referenda or two referenda on the same day. And one was to legalize abortion, uh, to prevent ab- pr- protect abortion. That, uh, Steve Caruso, I believe, is a constitutional amendment. And then the other was a referendum uh, legalizing in, in the regular law uh, uh, marijuana. And the legislature is playing games with both of these votes. Uh, is that right, Steve, coming from Ohio? Yep. Yep, and they're trying to fight. They had the six-week abortion ban. They're trying to fight that. So the right. people behind they, they, issue one or that are supporting it are trying to get that rescinded, and they're having a hard way to go, even though I do see some positive results from a judge or somebody in a judicial position. So hopefully that'll be rescinded as well. But the marijuana case, man, you know, I don't think they've done anything specific yet, but the, the latest thing is the LGBT community oh, and and uh they're trying to suppress them as much as possible they're just some small minority of ohioans just like everybody in our genetic makeup has every once in a while this recessive gene shows up at 0.005 <laughs> you know percent or whatever but yet it's a big deal for the republicans because they don't like nature obviously they're not allowing wind on the lakes, they're suppressing that. They still have HB6 in place where the coal plants are still getting money from the people um, that oh, was yep. in that bill. And, and who, who's going to jail? You know, Rendazzo's been indicted. Well, uh, we'll one get, guy we'll went into, to jail. Let, let's, get into that in, let's get into that in a minute, Steve. I, I do want to do an Ohio overview. Uh, we do have a, uh, a doctor to come on here fairly shortly to deal with uh, the um, digital issue. I also want to mention... Uh, Connie Klein asked, um, the uh, the state of California, uh, the California Public Utilities Commission has approved the extension of the um, uh, um, insane agreements that they have to uh, keep Diablo Canyon open. And I got to tell you that um, <clears throat> there's a, a piece on the front page of, New York, of the uh, L.A. Times today. We've been talking about Gavin Newsom, the governor of, Ohio, of, of California, not yet the governor of Ohio. And um, um, uh, that he signed an agreement in 2016 that Diablo Canyon would shut. And he has now, you know, gone back on his own signature uh, that was joined by the then governor, uh, Jerry Brown, and a whole host of other people. And uh, in this article in the front page of the LA uh, uh, LA Times, uh, they interviewed Nevada voters to see what um, uh, they thought of Davin Newsom. And many, many of them said that they didn't trust him and they didn't think that he was um, uh, trustworthy enough to to be president and even to run for president. You know, the word is spreading very quickly that 
he's probably a candidate not just for 2028 but for 2024 um as uh as uh, joe biden's um, negatives on his age catch up with him. So we'll see about that. But the CPUC did take a California Public Utilities Commission, um, uh, did take a definitive step forward or backwards to allow uh, Diablo Canyon to continue to operate. So we're going to have to deal with that as well. Speaking of uh, untrustworthiness. So um, um, now, well, we have a few minutes. I, I don't see the good doctor who is going to discuss with us the issue of digital um, uh, addiction. Uh, I do see Anna Georgie with us. Anna, good to see you. I do want to talk to you, Anna, about uh, the upcoming Lovejoy uh, Tower Toppling um, uh, event uh, in February. And uh, as many of you know, I lived on a communal farm uh, where with Anna Georgie as well. And in uh, 1974, um, uh, Sam Lovejoy, one of our co-communal guys, knocked over a weather tower in protest of the nuclear plant, which we eventually stopped. And this was a major event in the birth, hi Anna, major event in the birth of the No Nukes movement. And we will have Sam, <laughs> he doesn't know it yet, but we will have Sam <laughs> on our call in uh, February. And we'll, we'll devote a, a full hour to this anniversary because it really is the, uh, the birth of the No Nukes movement. And Anna, who you see there, uh, is has been a stalwart. She put together the first volume called No Nukes. Uh, do you have a copy you can flash to it for us, Anna? Um, uh, way back when. So we'll do that. And and we're going to talk at, in the second hour today more about nuclear power because a major report has come out uh, about uh, this insane idea of tripling nuclear capacity. It's, you know, you wonder about our species sometime. I mean, is there intelligent life on Earth? We have 45 people with us. And I do want to now go to Ohio, Steve Caruso, the, the string of events that is occurring in Ohio. If I wrote a novel about Ohio politics, nobody would believe me uh, about what's going on. We had a $61 million bribe that, that was documented by the FBI and resulted in a federal conviction against the Speaker of the Ohio House, who is now in prison for 20 years. The reason for the $61 million bribe was to persuade, as they say, the um, the legislature to pass a $1 billion bailout for the two nuclear plants in Ohio. So they busted and they passed a bill toward this effect. And part of the bill said that they had to continue to uh, subsidize two coal plants, one of which is in Indiana, for God's sakes. That bill has not been repealed. And we are now this take the ratepayers and taxpayers of Ohio are now subsidizing two 50-year-old coal-burning power plants in Ohio based on this new nuclear bailout, which actually was finally canceled. We now come uh, after, now Larry Householder is in prison. Mike DeWine, the guy who is now about to sign a serious anti-trans bill, a horrible bill in, in, in Ohio, just absolute bigotry put to, put to law. And we're joined by Dr. Cardaris, um, who's going to take us into uh, digital addiction here. But let me run through this really quickly. And we will come to the, back to this in the second hour. Um, <laughs> I knew this guy. Uh, 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 his name is Sam Randazzo. And he was a, a, a lobbyist for the coal, oil, and nuke industry and gas, the, the fossil nuke industry in Ohio. And we were always very cordial. I, I, you know, I saw him very frequently, and he was always very cordial, but just totally opposed to all forms of renewable energy and against the advice of all his 
uh, um, um, advisors, um, uh, Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, appointed this guy, Sam Randazzo, the fierce opponent of green energy, to be the head of the Ohio Public Utilities Commission. I mean, a complete in, insider job. And Sam Randazzo has just been indicted for taking $4.3 million in bribes. How stupid can you be? This is the chairman of the Ohio Public Utilities Commission, takes $4 million in bribes from the utility company that has just gotten a billion-dollar bailout with a $61 million bribe. I mean, you, the, the level of corruption and insanity is absolutely staggering. And in the, in the second part of the hour, if you will, I will. <laughs> he considered it his day job. His salary was, you know, made up by just like we. There's a front page article in New York Times today, by the way, that says that Clarence Thomas went around complaining to his billionaire friends that he wasn't making enough money on the Supreme Court, and because she's and because he was complaining to these right wingers, they were afraid he would resign from the court. So they started pouring in money to him. This is a lot of where this Clarence Thomas stuff comes from. And this guy in Ohio, I mean, did he think that nobody would notice? They, they, they were sending emails to each other. The head of, the, of uh, First Energy was sending emails in writing. With DeWine, they were communicating with DeWine, and they went to dinner with DeWine. And Husted is like the center of all this stuff here. He's the lieutenant governor. We've talked about this before. And then there's... Uh, LaRose, who's like running interference as Secretary of State while he's advertising with one of the scoundrel right on, on right wing radio. <laughs> so it, 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 it's it's unbelievable. That, I mean, it's just totally it's like it's the 1880s again. You know, when these when the bribery guys walked. In. Well, we did have <laughs> we did have an instance in under Nixon. In the in, in the 1972 campaign. And that's one of the reasons we're called Greep. I just think it's funny because Nixon had to campaign to reelect the president, which was Greep. So we are Greep. And in the middle of the 1972 election, and we'll come back to this in the seventh, second hour, Dwayne Andreas, the head of um, Archer Daniels Midlands, literally walked into the White House, into the Oval Office with a paper bag. They had $100,000 in cash in it. Well, it's when they had the election here with Bush, and the one lobbyist for Tybalt uh, went down to the voting center in Franklin County and wrote them a check that day for $10,000. Oh, right. $10,000. Well, I met the guy. I used check. to have meetings with him out here. And who did he have? He had a Democratic attorney general as his buddy as part of the lobbying scheme. Yeah, there you go. Well, listen, we will come back to this in the second hour. I mean, the corruption that we're facing, uh, Wendy and Carolina in Florida, uh, Steve in Ohio and Mike in D.C., I mean, it's just, it, it's staggering. You know, you get all these uh, theoretical discussions of fascism and all this stuff. These guys are crooks. The Nazis were crooks. I mean, they were totally insane and psychopathic and had all this stuff with Jews and all this other stuff. But push come to shove, they were just basically common criminals. And that's what we're dealing with now. And this is nonpartisan, by the way. I will guarantee you for every corrupt Democrat, Republican, you'll find a corrupt Democrat, too. So listen, we're going to we're going to deep dive now. We have a really great guest with us, uh, Nicholas Cardaris. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Cardaris, can you hear me? Are you on? Let's get you unmuted here. 
Um, and um, a, week, a, a week ago, yeah. uh, we had, there you go, Nick. Hi, how you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having okay. me. Do we have Camilla Reese on with us? Camilla, I wanted you to introduce uh, Dr. Cardaris, if you will. Um, um, we, we a week ago had a discussion um, about uh, the um, uh, Google and their um, playing games with, you know, influencing people through Google. And uh, you have a different take on, and we, we got a lot of very diverse opinions on that whole thing. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Epstein, uh, who is also brought to us by um, uh, Camilla. Camilla. And Camilla, I'm, I'm looking for you. Oh, there you are. I'm here. Okay. So, Camilla, will you introduce Dr. Cardaris? Dr. Cardaris, we're going to go a half hour with you if you like. Um, and um, uh, we want to, Camilla will introduce you. And I was fascinated by what you do. So let, I'm sure everybody else will as well. So go ahead, please. Sure, just very briefly. Um, I met Dr. Cardaris, gosh, you know, maybe five years ago and um, read his best-selling book, Glow Kids, um, about the effects of technology on children and, and his second book called Digital Madness. And um, he's considered probably the most um, expert on tech addiction in this country, starting originally in just addiction, where he runs various, you know, rehab centers. But uh, he's really dug into the research on this and the brain effects of what's happening and the manipulation and how it we're being, children especially, being shaped. And I just think he'll, he'll have a lot to say that will be of interest so that we understand similar theme to Epstein, that Epstein, that we are we are really um, being dramatically impacted by the um, online algorithms and, you know, bad intentions of some of these big tech companies. So go ahead, Nick. Yes, Doctor. And you speaking to 47 people, this will be broadcast um, uh, on radio, uh, webcast uh, on the Pacific Radio Network and on uh, the, the Progressive Radio Network <laughs> later on in the week. So you got a big audience. We're really interested to hear what you got to say. Great. Well, thank you for having me on, and I'll try to keep it sort of to the point and um, illuminate as much as I can. So I came, I came into this arena uh, really looking at the impacts. Really, it's the intersection of the digital age and our society, our mental health, and and everything in between. Um, so as a psychologist, I started seeing the the habituation that can happen to our digital devices 12, 13 years ago. So the first the first play in the playbook was habituation that. You know, we were seeing a dramatic shift in young people, the way that they were experiencing their technology seemed to have all the telltale signs of addiction. Um, they were getting uh, habituated to different platforms, whether it was, it tended to have a bit of a gender divide. Um, young boys and adolescent males were having gaming addiction was sort of their drug of digital drug of choice. And younger females tended to have social media as their uh, digital drug of choice. And beginning to understand how it was impacting them, that that they were having all the telltale signs as a set of addiction, that they would get dysregulated when they didn't have it, that they would have all the all the diagnostic symptoms of any any kind of other behavioral addiction, whether it's gambling or sex or or even substance addictions, uh, withdrawal signs and everything else. So the the bigger narrative though was that we started seeing a huge spike in our mental health metrics about 10 to 15 years ago. We started seeing record levels of depression, anxiety, ADHD, suicide, 
overdose. So before COVID in 2018, 2019 rather, we had the record levels of suicide, over 42,000 suicides. We had record levels of overdoses, over 70,000 overdoses. We had the highest rates of depression, highest rates of anxiety. And, uh, and these were metrics that were, interestingly enough, they were disproportionately impacting the younger generational cohort. So if you looked at the mental health of people, and you started with baby boomers, and you went down to Gen X and millennials, and then Gen Z, the younger the cohort, the more psychiatrically uh, challenged they were, the, the higher their psychiatric metrics. So the younger you were, the more depressed you were, the more suicidal you were, the more mm -hmm. anxious you were. And that seemed to correlate with how tethered you were, how much screen time you were on. And so a lot of research started coming out that the more screen time, the more problematic it was for our mental health. And so part of the narrative has been that, that I've written and talked a lot about is that we weren't evolutionarily designed to be sedentary, screen staring, not face-to-face -face connected, meaning devoid. Because let's face it, digital technology, it's, it's a stimulant. And it, it, and it arouses us. It's very dopamine activating. We call it dopaminergic. It's very adrenalergic. It's very habit forming. And it keeps us stuck in front of a screen, which goes totally, it's antithetical to how we were wired as a, a social species. And if you look at any of the research from everybody from the blue zones to some of the work, like uh, depression researcher, Stephen Alardi was looking at the mental health of people globally. And what they found was the most mentally well people were pre-industrial and indigenous folks. So the Kaluli in Papua New Guinea, they'd studied them for over 10 years, 2,000 Kaluli, and not one of them had clinical depression, even though they lived very challenging lives. They had so, daily survival was a struggle, and yet none of them were clinically depressed. And so depression researchers, and we all started looking, what were some of these common themes that were making people from those types of societies less unwell or more, more well than we were? And so they... Dr. Lardy and some of his colleagues came up with a few immunizing factors, and it was face-to-face -face interaction, it was physical activity, it was high omega-3 diets, it was nature and sunlight, and these were all things that were baked into our DNA for our, our not only our physical well-being, but our psychological well-being. And so if you look at what screen time in the digital age has done, it's been a nuclear bomb on those things. It's made us more sedentary. Uh, it's made us less face-to-face -face interactive. It's taken away all the things that we really need to be well. And it disproportionately does that to young people because they're the ones who are most tethered to their devices. Um, so, so that was beginning to understand, yes, you know, so step one was the habituation piece. And then if you look at things like the documentary, The Social Dilemma, you now have... Um, you now Let have me interrupt you one second, yeah. very quickly. You've mentioned the social, I, because otherwise we lose track. You've mentioned The Social Dilemma. I don't know how many people on this call have seen this movie, a documentary, The Social Dilemma. I believe it's on Netflix. <clears throat> yeah. I, I've seen it twice. It's staggering. As a father of five with many grandchildren, it's, it's absolutely one of the most disturbing pieces I've ever seen. And people really need to uh, take a look at this. Of course, we're recommending people watch more on their screen, but nonetheless, right. uh, here, here we are. So the digital madness, <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, uh, social, social dilemma, social dilemma uh, on Netflix uh, or, or wherever it is, but take a look. And uh, Nicholas, uh, could you tell us uh, what is your background real quick? So, so I'm a PhD psychologist. I've been a clinical professor at Stony Brook Medicine for uh, over 10 years. I own and run treatment programs where I specialize in young adult mental health 
uh, everything from uh, addiction to psychiatric disorders to now these digital impacts. So I have uh, I'm a clinician and an author, and I wrote I've written a couple of books about these uh, these societal observations. Do you treat um, people who come to you uh, specifically for digital addiction? Yeah, about a third of them. But well, you can't be. I, I don't believe that you could be a 20 or 21 year old. Uh, and not be impacted by digital media to varying degrees. But our treatment program in Austin, which is a residential program, I would say about a third of our clients are coming in primarily for technology-related issues. Tech over a third, and, 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 30, 33%? Yeah. That's huge. That's and it, well, it's it's not just the tech addiction part, right? And that's the second part I was going to say. And by the way, I just want to backtrack to the social dilemma, why I think that documentary was particularly impactful before that documentary, The Social Dilemma, you had people like me saying, be weary of digital media, be weary of big tech. They are, they are intentionally and predatorily uh, attacking our psychological vulnerabilities because it leads to increased engagement. And that's what we've come to understand. The Facebook whistleblower, Frances Hogan, she pulled back the curtain. She showed the internal emails, the internal studies that Meta had done, that Instagram had done, that showed that they knew that their platforms were increasing suicide rates amongst young people. And they said, you know, that because the internal dialogue was, should we dampen down the algorithm and make them less aggressive, less uh, harmful? And the answer was absolutely not, because that will decrease engagement. And so there were people like me who were saying, the sky is falling. There's, we should be weary of this love affair that we're all having with our snazzy, shiny devices. But the social dilemma was the first documentary where it was the the big tech, um, the the folks who had a crisis of conscience in big tech who said, "Yeah, this is what we did, and we did it by design." And they themselves wow. pulled back the curtain on their playbook. And uh, let me, I'm, I want you to continue. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to make sure we have context for everybody. There's also a film <clears throat> whose name escapes me now, <clears throat> but you'll know it about Cambridge Analytica. And um, and the effect they had in putting Trump in the White House. Do you remember the name of that film? Does anybody know the name of that film? Uh, it escapes me at the moment. But it's a two. There have been a couple. I mean, so I don't know specifically which one. I mean, there's been screened out. There's been a couple that have looked at the political aspect of what we're talking about. And and that goes. And then we had we had last week Dr. Epstein mm -hmm. who talked about google's manipulation as well so you're walking into a big context here and i want to invite you right now to come back next year and talk with dr epstein simultaneously be a real real powerful uh discussion but now now that i've interrupted you go ahead please thank you no, we know who you no. are and we know we know a bigger context here so please proceed well and I, and I think the bigger context even in the political context is the societal adverse impact because in addition because tech addiction is was only the price of admission to this whole problem so getting us all habituated to various degrees as i said before the younger you are the more habituated the more likely you are to be habituated and dependent on our screen technology but we're all impacted um you know nicholas Carr in his book the shallows pulitzer prize winning author talked about his attention span has now been atrophied he can't read more than two pages without his mind drifting We've all been impacted to to some degree. What I write about in my most recent book is not just the habituation, the addicting piece of our technology, but the mind shaping aspect of it as well. And not just, and I don't mean just misinformation, disinformation, and political um, targeted uh, shiftings. You know, the algorithms, 
I've come to understand algorithms as almost living organisms that live on on an, what's what we call it an extremification loop. Uh, there is the algorithms and and digital platforms don't thrive on nuance. They don't thrive on critical thinking and on uh, in depth discourse. So they thrive on our lizard brain reactive emotional reactivity is where the algorithm thrives. And so whether we're talking about influencers and materialism content or we're talking about political content there becomes what we that feedback loop that we talk about where if the algorithm senses that you're either lean left or you lean right you're going to get an extremification loop of ever increasing content in the direction that that you already are leaning towards so it creates this echo chamber but more impactfully what we're seeing with young people the psychiatric metrics were were weakening the psych, what I call the psychological immune system of young people because now they don't know they don't they've lost the skill set of critical thinking because there is no nuance or or critical discourse in in social media. It's all shouting from the rooftops, uh, attacking the lizard brain. And so I'm I'm back. I had taken a break from teaching at a, in graduate school, so I'm back in the classroom and now I'm teaching 23 to 28 year olds. And, and I had taken a five-year break from teaching. And I'm shocked at how um, unwell these graduate students are who are in a graduate school for, for mental health and the reactivity, the emotional uh, immaturity, the inability to have engaging conversation because they have now been softened. Uh, the resilience, the, 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 there's, a, there's a weakening of the American mind that's happened because of this this attack on our psyche. And, and you see it, if you work with young people, you see this, this um, you know, some people call it, you know, the stereotype is young people needing, you know, trigger warnings and safe spaces. Well, that's a reality. That's, that's, that's an emotional reactivity that's happened is, I believe is a byproduct of some of this, um, some of these algorithm fueled platforms that have now essentially created binary thinkers. And so you either think love, hate, black, white, and there's no spacing between. And so what I, what I, similar to linguistic theory, what I've theorized is that it's now robbed young people of the ability to be able to think in the gray, um, that they are only able to conceptualize things in the extreme. And, and that's to their own psychological detriment. So the larger issue is we've created young people that don't know how to critically think and how to discern any kind of information, disinformation or otherwise, and they are now emotionally more fragile and less resilient. And they are now very highly reactive and we've done them a disservice because they now have been swimming in this world of social media nonsense, TikTok news and, and uh, influencer uh, nonsense for the last 10 to 15 years. Mind-boggling. Uh, the, the, the film title I was looking for is The Great Hack. Yeah, and that that was the document. And there was a whistleblower, a female, uh, who was Francis Hogan. Yes, and and so if you're gonna see um, the the one movie, uh, uh, the social dilemma, you should also see the great hack, and then <laughs> go get drunk. Uh, so uh, I mean, brilliant stuff here. Really, really, you had a great phrase: your weakening of the American mind. I mean, that's that's really uh, very much what well, it is. Well, 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 let me give you one other phrase, if I may. I, I think we're all suffering, and again, disproportionately young people, we're all suffering from a form of Stockholm Syndrome. Um, we have been put into digital cages, um, except now we have now romanticized and fallen in love with our captors. Our 
tech oligarchs from Steve Jobs to Bill Gates to Elon Musk have become cultural icons. And so we are not only exploiting third world countries to in service of our digital addiction. Uh, you know, we know about lithium batteries and cobalt in the Congo, the exploitation that's happening in the Congo. There are six-year-old children who are dying in cobalt mines so that we can manufacture lithium batteries to run our iPads. There, There's examples of what I call tech colonialism all over the world, where you have third world peoples being exploited to give us our iPhone. And, and so our iPhone is our digital cage, but yet we have other folks who are in more marginalized communities who are in actual um, oppressive conditions from Foxconn in China, where they're working in slave-like conditions and committing suicides at record levels to create the iPhone guts to, um, like, as I said, the Congo and lithium batteries to uh, there are people in India who are content moderators who are forced to watch their training AI to filter our content for things like child pornography, uh, really violent content. I've seen some of the most violent content on digital media and and they don't they outsource that overseas because it's too libelous it's too it's too litigious to have american workers to watch because if you're watching 10 hours a day of murder rape and offensive content you're going to need you're you're going to do psychological damage to a human being they're going to need there's lawsuits to be had if they do that so they outsource there's a company called i merit that outsources that aspect of filtering our violent or or inappropriate digital content the third world peoples who have no insurance, no recourse, no law, legal system. And essentially most of them go insane within three or four months of just watching hour after hour of things like child pornography. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's an underbelly to, for us to get our shiny devices. There's a underbelly of people being exploited uh, and there's our own society, which is being also manipulated and our own young people who are also being exploited as well. Whoa, man. All right. This is powerful stuff. I hope you can stay with us past the top of the hour. Uh, we're clearly going to have a, a, a lot of people want to talk to you here. Um, um, we have uh, Lynn Feinerman, who has a very uh, 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 powerful radio show, uh, then Mike Hirsch, our co-convener, and then Nancy Parko, who is actually a therapist um, and deals with these issues um, in, a, sure. in a medical context. So I hope you can stay with us. Sure. Nicholas Carderas is absolutely fascinating. We have 46 people online, and we're rock and rolling here. Lynn Feinerman, please. Go ahead, Lynn. Thank you. Um, Nicholas, uh, in Naomi Klein's Doppelganger, she talks about the um, shredding of reality uh, in, in the uh, branding and the competition to have your brand, you know, receive millions and millions of, of hits and millions of listeners and so forth. And um, she says that in order to do that, you have to engage in a kind of sensationalism about your entire project that renders it unreal. And um, what I'm wondering about is how you see this affecting politics and in particular uh, the upcoming uh, races, because uh, we are seeing um, weirder and weirder doo-doo, um, that's not a George Carlin word, um, weirder doo-doo coming out of the rump, out of Trump, um, than we've ever seen before. And what it really is doing is, you know, it's that kind of sensational 
branding of oneself and getting a, a attention, but in fact, it's fashion. So um, do we take this as a cartoon? Do we take this as uh, incipient fascism? Is it both? You know, I, I think what you're talking about, too, is there's a desensitization that's happened in our race to the bottom where a lot of uh, folks who are, you know, another phrase of some of this digital media is high impact stimulation. And you can only be exposed to it for so long before you have to increase the sensationalism or increase the intensity of it, because eventually it, we, we get desensitized to it and we get bored, which is why the gaming industry, when they attacked, you know, seven and eight year olds, they were always increasing the adrenaline quotient of the game because that maintains engagement. On the, on the political spectrum, similarly, as you've mentioned, we've had to up the ante of surreal sensationalism to get people's attention and to get that lizard brain activated because it's an emotions economy. Um, so in the emotions economy, the winner is the person who gets the most reactive lizard brain. And we know that the emotions that do that the most are fear and hate. Um, love, unfortunately, does not light up the emotional Geiger counter in the same way that the, the more... Um, ostensibly survival emotions do. And so uh, the the very smart people who run our digital platforms understand this and the manipulators of those platforms, like some of our uh, esteemed politicians, uh, know how to manipulate this the best. And they know that if you're going to go out there and you're going to have civil discourse in a way that's not sensationalist, no one's going to pay attention. Wow. And of course, it, it also feeds polarization. It's really a death of nuance in here. It, it, that that would be that was at one point the name of the book was going to be the death of the nuance because that's what we've lost. Now, there's no room for nuance in 30 second emotional nuclear blasts at people. There's no room for that. You get that when you read the depth and breadth of a book, but no one's reading books anymore. Books have gone by the, the way of the Etzel. Well, and also the the um, we had actually last week. It was two weeks ago. We had Dr. Robert Epstein. Uh, last week, we had Ken Stern from the um, uh, Bard College uh, Center for the Study of Hate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it kind of grabs you by the neck, Center for the Study of Hate. But clearly, you know, it, it's, uh, it's become a part of hate is, is um, a media uh, a game that the digital providers uh, depend on now. Because hate, hate and fear. Fear is the... Hate and fear, twin, right? The twin to hate is fear, right? And then, um, and then love and sex. But sex is a lot easier to sell. Uh, sex is a lot less nuanced than love. So right. you know, but they, even from a sexual desensitization standpoint, you have examples of now. I'm friends with pediatricians. Just on a side note, things like pornography with adolescents. You have now a phenomenon called uh, adolescent erectile dysfunction. So you have teenagers now for the first time ever, suffering from erectile dysfunction because of this desensitization effect. We have 17-year-olds who have seen more graphic, vivid, desensitizing sexual content than you and I could never have imagined in our adolescent years. So it what? works, political spectrum, sexual spectrum, across the whole board, this desensitization is happening. And so I work with young people who, when they look at you, there's nothing there or there. There's a flat uh, NUE, there's a boredom, there's an apathy. And they're living to be stimulated because they've been hyper-stimulated. And now, unless they're getting essentially um, cutting their arms or a blowtorch to their to their butt, they're they're flat. There's not that that sense of in, in, intrinsic curiosity or that sense of wow. There's just 
they've been numbed, numbed and dulled. Some neurologists are calling this digital phenomenon uh, digital dementia. And some of our young people look like they're suffering from dementia. Well, Nancy Naparco knows a lot about this. Mike was ahead of you, Nancy, and then we'll go to you. But Mike always has great content as well. Mike, Mike Hirsch, uh, Nicholas, this is one of our co-conveners, Mike Hirsch. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, this is as fascinating as it is horrifying. And it occurs to me that this is similar to junk food, where <laughs> manufacturers will hype the salt and sugar content and pack it with empty calories. And we have a diabetes epidemic and we have other epidemics. And then along comes this new enticing way to live your life in a sedentary sitting position. That's right. While flashing lights go off all around you. And, um, and there's uh, the equivalent for people who don't play video games. One of the things that um, you know, I, I was confronted with, I was called in to consult um, professionally with a, an organization was advising Facebook on their efforts of um, what do you, you know, what do you call it? You know, crisis management when it leaked that they were using their algorithm to manipulate people to see how depressed mm. and upset they could make people. And it turned out that that got people depressed and upset. So <laughs> the fact that they had the algorithm uh, um, became kind of a meta event for them. And they decided that they had to do something to clean up their act. So I was called in and I told them that what they're doing is horrible. One of the worst things that they're doing is bringing relatives and people went to the same high school or friends who are listed on, on their platform as friends. One of them is pro um, gun safety. Another one is a second amendment extremist and they'll like put them in the arena in front of their friends and let them go at it. And I think that this is a particularly heartless and devastating practice that they do to keep people stuck on the platform. I don't think they want to bust up marriages and get cousins screaming at each other, but I think they're willing to uh, uh, accept that outcome as long as they keep people stuck on the platform all day. And if I see, you know, my long lost cousin is taking a political position slightly different from mine, and I'm encouraged to argue with him or her, so much the better. And I was wondering if you looked into that particular phenomenon and the way it's destructive to the relationships that are already under a lot of stress between human beings. Yeah. Oh, and, and I do think it's intentional because they know it's intentional because, again, going back to the Facebook or the made a whistleblower, Francis Hogan. Their research had showed that internal research four years ago that showed that Instagram was increasing suicidality amongst adolescent females by 12% in England and 6% in the United States. That hard data showing, and then also the secondary data showed that eating disorders were getting exacerbated by 17%. And if you're an adolescent and you have an eating disorder, it's one of the most fatal disorders that you can have. The five-year mortality rates of an eating disorder are extremely high. And the comments were, do we dampen down the algorithm? And it was, as I said before, full steam ahead. We don't want to decrease engagement. And it was viewed as essentially collateral damage, or um, this is what needs to happen for us to increase engagement. We don't, it was a classic example of profit over people. Um, and, and they didn't do anything. And, you know, we drag, Zuckerberg gets dragged in front of Congress and Senate. And I've worked with the some of the legislative initiatives to defang some of these harmful algorithms, but they come in for their every, you know, it's like a biannual checkup. They come in, they go in front of the Senate, they say, we'll get back to you on that. We'll try to do better. 
Their lobbyists are extremely powerful. Uh, Section 230, uh, removing Section 230, which essentially gives them immunity from liability from the damage done by the platforms, is one of the biggest initiatives that's happening from a legislative standpoint. And they've been fighting that tooth and nail because the, for those of you that don't know, um, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is the is the the shield that they use to not be sued. And they're essentially saying we're not publishers of content. All we are is we're message boards. So in the same way that you can't sue your community message board for people's random messages that are put on it, we're just a message board. We're not responsible for our content, which clearly they are uh, gatekeeping their content. They are more than just a random message board, and they should lose Section 230 protection. They should also be subject to antitrust laws, which they've been skirting for a very long time because they've become monolithic you know the the five big tech companies have become the most powerful entities that have ever existed because they don't control you know we used to talk about jd rockefeller was the wealthiest man in america and he controlled one commodity oil these folks control information and they control they're the gatekeepers of what we think feel how we vote how we how we live our lives um and so no one's ever been more powerful in the history of of humanity Right. I just and wanted we, to hold on, slow I just wanted to really, really quickly say that Facebook saw their biggest problem as the um, fakes that tried to swindle people out of their life savings, but claiming mm-hmm. that they loved them, they needed to, their mother needed a cancer operation, whatever like that. And they said, we're taking great strides to tamp that down. But they never mentioned anything about tweaking that algorithm that's driving young people to suicide putting people at each other's throats right. and, and, and so on and so forth. And I, I just was wondering if we could maybe ask Keith Ellison to look into having the attorneys general file a, a lawsuit against these social media corporations. Well, they, they are there right now. There's 40 attorney generals that are looking at legislation against Meta. I'm involved with a, there's a class action suit. Now the, they're, they're going to follow the big pharma playbook, like the Purdue pharmaceutical Oxycontin playbook and the big tobacco playbook. There's a series of leg- uh, legal action now being taken, class action lawsuits of families that have been harmed, children who have committed suicide, exam- you know, i.e. Um, and there are some of the most powerful class action attorneys are now sharpening their knives, getting ready for these, uh, essentially getting ready for these suits. And the attorney generals are are at the same time looking at it from from their perspective as well. So private class action suits and attorney generals to defang some of these uh, big tech entities. Wow, fantastic! Uh, Camille is your has has brought you on, and and, and Dr. Nancy, um, um, Nancy, could you, you let Camilla jump in? She's the host, and then I'll go to you. Okay, go ahead, Nancy. Please, Camilla, did you want to jump in, and then we'll go to Nancy Naparco? Go ahead. Let me get you unmuted here. Hold on, hold on. You're still muted. Yeah. So um, I'm wondering if you could talk about the radicalization that's happening online to young people and tell the story that you told me about that one 13 year old boy who murdered somebody at a birthday party and, you know, the before and the after and the get once he got off the tech, how he changed. I think it's really, really, um, you know, enlightening. Yeah, you just have to Google uh, Corey Johnson. Corey Johnson was a, a Palm Beach County teenager white suburban kid from Palm Beach County who had been a YouTuber and his whole living experience was on YouTube 24 seven. And as we know how YouTube works, the predictive algorithm, they send you your feed on YouTube becomes 
content that they think you know if you watch a, a cat video on youtube they'll you're going to see 13 more cat videos on your recommended feed so this young man was politically and what's really fascinating and horrific about his story he was a pretty typical teenage you know he looked like your average skateboarder when he was 14 or 15 he started off and here's what's also really fascinating how many different permutations ideological permutations he went through in a short period of time he started off at the age of 15 as a progressive liberal always very politically uh, interested because he was a smart young kid in in pretty short order he watched a youtube video about the holocaust and because he watched that video the algorithm started sending him holocaust denying videos and before you know it he became a white supremacist so white supremacist and a neo-nazi sympathizer he stayed a neo-nazi for a few months wore that uh, metaphorical uniform for a period of time and then he watched a brief video about syria and Assad and the conflict that was happening in syria and then then he started getting isis recruitment videos and 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 in short order and by the way the fbi showed me some of these isis recruitment videos these make steven spielberg look like an amateur these were highly slick production value uh five languages a day they produce multiple videos every day in multiple languages targeting the low-hanging fruit for the ideological folks are the lonely outlier adolescent male that kid who's stuck in mom's basement alone doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. So now he starts falling down the rabbit hole towards Islamic extremism. And then they started, to, and, and when you watch some of these recruitment videos, if I didn't know better, if I was a 16 year old boy, they made it look like they were like the Peace Corps. They built wells for communities. They were community oriented. They were wonderful organizations if you just watch these recruitment videos. So once he fall, goes down that path, they started sending him decapitation videos. Oh. And, and I had to interview him in, prison because he he was uh, uh he was being charged with capital murder he had essentially decapitated a 13 year old boy and tried to kill four other people in this really horrific crime and when he walked me through from how he went from sweet nice kid who stereotypically wouldn't hurt a fly to how he got to where he got how he once he drank the kool-aid once he drank the ideological kool-aid because again he was getting brainwashed 24 7 15, 20 years ago, if you're going to join a cult or be brainwashed, you know, if you're going to read the Turner Diaries or if you're going to get pulled into the Manson family or Jonestown, you needed a charismatic cult leader. It took time, effort, and energy. Now we have young people who are being predatorily sought and brainwashed through 24-7 digital immersion. And when I had interviewed him in prison because his trial was delayed due to COVID, he had been away from all these brainwashing platforms for eight months, nine months at that point. And he had basically went back to the nice sweet kid that he used to be. He had tried to commit suicide twice in prison because he felt so remorseful at what he had done. He couldn't believe what he had done. And when I went back home after I flew back from Florida where I had to interview him for my court testimony because it was an insanity defense, I told my wife what really gave unnerved me was how normal and nice this kid seemed. This wasn't a sociopath. This wasn't, you know, I thought I was going to meet a young Dahmer or a young sociopath. And instead I met what seemed like an empathic, sweet kid who had been totally subsumed and brainwashed by constant ideological brainwashing. So if it can happen in that direction, it can happen to the right, it can happen to the left. Um, it it it's fairly easy to do once you get someone going down that rabbit hole. Mind-boggling. I mean, now we have Nancy Naparco. Nancy is a, a therapist and, and no, a, I'm not. Oh, okay. There you go. And I, I want I first of all, I want to say 
Thank you, Dr. Kaderis. Everything you say is cor- absolutely correct. And that is why even my very good friends like Harvey think I'm a therapist because I've essentially become a therapist because I became aware of this in the mid 1990s. Mm. I started 30 years ago as a pediatric physical, uh, I was a physical therapist, pediatric neurologist. I am a neurologist and I look at this medically and not psychologically, but what I saw was that in the middle 1990s, when every mother who had anything to put together, any awareness, they bought the baby Einstein videos. Yeah, yeah. And that is what started the addiction in these babies. And some of my good therapist friends said, physical therapists said, have you ever seen so many babies who are anxious? Yeah. And I gave a grand round at Cedars-Sinai Hospital to all the pediatricians in 20 years ago. I never heard the word screen time. I thought I invented it. <laughs> but I I dug up even back then, there was evidence that being in front of a screen raises your anxiety. Yeah, It's it- just being in front of a screen. And why is that? Well, Pavlov who was in the early 1990s and known for drooling dogs when they smelled something. He also did some other description. And that is when when the screen changes, when there's a sudden noise or a sudden new vision stimulus, you go into a stress response. And it lasts, I think, about five seconds. And what we've learned with media is that as long as we change the stress response right. quick enough, you stay in a constant stress response. So people are throwing things in the chat about adrenaline and dopamine and all of that. It It's a constant stress response. And so when you get habituated, I love that you use the word habituated because it re- and it's addictive. We need to be giving these kids more stimulant drugs. And I will tell you over the years, I've cured ADHD in a number of kids when I had receptive parents who would stop all screen time. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite story, and I can't prove this, but I, you know, I see many, many thousands of kids over the 33 years, was a one-year-old who was flagrantly autistic, all the symptoms of autism. And if you ask me, you go down the symptoms of autism, every one of them is a stress response. Yeah. And there was a one-year-old who came in rocking, no eye contact, no words, no communication, blah, 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 blah. Mom listened to me. She went home, turned off the TV, fixed the TV so the one-year-old couldn't turn it on anymore. The little girl went into a screaming tantrum for 24 hours. Right, right. Calmed, started making eye contact and talking the next day. Now, you can't do that to a five-year-old. I love that you share that. Right, right. The horses left the barn at that point. But I love that you shared that story, Nancy, because uh, a, a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Victoria Dunkley, who is an adolescent and pediatric psychiatrist in Los Angeles, uh, she wrote a, a great book called How to Reset Your Child's Brain. And she she claims that in the thousand kids that she's seen in the last 10 years, um, she won't do a diagnosis or medicate unless they do a digital detox for six weeks. And fully 70% of them who come in with either attentional disorders, ADHD, and or spectrum disorder. She fully talks about the autism piece like you do. The symptoms after the digital detox go away. 70% anecdotally, 
in her practice, 70% of the time, the symptoms go away when you take away the stimulant screen time. And when you talk about the baby Einstein piece and the rapid cuts and the stress response, that's exactly right. So we, the HPA response, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal, the fight or flight, it's activating our fight or flight response, which is why we went from Mr. Rogers, single camera, slow panning cuts that were so soothing and calming to even if you watch a Nickelodeon kid show today, it's rapid cut, rapid cut, rapid cut, because they have to maintain that stress level response to keep engagement going, because now little Johnny and Susie will lose attention because they've been so habituated to high impact stimulation in six months, one year, two years, that now everything's got to be bells and whistles and bells and whistles. I took my teenagers bowling a couple of years ago. We hadn't been bowling in forever. And I remembered bowling from, you know, the big Lebowski days of bowling. And we walked into this bowling alley and it was, <laughs> and it was like Las Vegas. This bowling alley had more screens and bells and whistles. And I thought I entered this surreal. And then I realized, cause I looked around me and most of the kids there were like 14, 15, this bowling alley had to compete against screen time and all the bells and whistles of screen time. So they had to up the ante of all these things that create the stress response. Like you said, it was, so it's shifted all these things in such a negative way, but I know there's and other people with hands up. It doesn't get much press, but Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, those people won't let their little kids right. have computers. And and Sergey Brin and Larry Page from Google were all Montessori students. Jeff Bezos was a Montessori student. All the tech moguls, not only did they not let their kids have tech, but they were low tech Montessori students, the, the vast majority of them. So it's do as I say, not as I do, or do as and my kids do either. So it's that's one of the most telling bits of information, I think. One of the other great things you said was the Stockholm Syndrome. I mm. think that's a big issue as applied to the specialists who have their own kids. So I've mm. read medical doctors complaining how horrible we are to say that children are addicted to screens because their kids are okay, however they are. Yeah, And that, right. to me, those parents are in a Stockholm syndrome. And kids love to say, you know, they like it. Parents say, oh, but my child likes this. They like this game. They don't like it. They're addicted. As Paula Poundson says in the piece she does, they would love heroin, too, if you gave them a little bit of it, too. It's, um, you, know, you know who really drank the Kool-Aid, too, the the edgy, the. the the entrepreneurs, you know, so I do a lot of speaking at education conferences, superintendents and educators, they drank the Kool-Aid on screens in the classroom before COVID, before we had the COVID disaster of, of Zoom schooling. And we saw how horrific that was. Everybody from um, Rupert Murdoch had invested a billion dollars into a company called Amplify, trying to create, you know, every, instead of a chicken in every pot, he wanted to have a child with a tablet from K through 12. And all the research showed there was no pedagogical benefit for any of it. The the countries with the highest educational outcomes like Finland had no individual screens in the classroom up until uh, late adolescence. And and yet, and yet all these school systems were laying off teachers and investing in ed tech uh, to the detriment of their students. Our, our score, test scores kept going down. Kids kept getting more and more unwell. And big tech kept getting richer and richer as these misguided i think some of them were well-intentioned but misguided superintendents and educators were drinking the kool-aid like some of the parents did and you learn 10 percent less reading it from a screen than right. a book right 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 jeez 
phenomenal. God, what a discussion. <laughs> it's mind-boggling to me. Okay, we got to zip through. I'm, we, we've taken a lot of your time, uh, Dr. Cardaris. Nobody has left, by the way. <laughs> you still have more people now than we did before. So, um, um, Justin, very quickly, Steve, Wendy, and we'll go back to Lynn Feinerman, and then Donald Smith, a newcomer. So, Justin, please, quickly. So unfortunately, this is not going to be as quick as most people think, because there's a whole series of things. But what I will summarize at the moment is uh, that the addiction to drugs can be overridden by the social connection of community. That's another study that has been done. And so there are solutions to these kinds of problems. Rath Park, uh, you're referring to the Rath Park and, and, and those experiments that Dr. Alexander did all the rat park experiments of socialization of addicted rats and the socialized rats. Correct. Yep. That's we're, the we're happy, joyous and free and no longer addicted, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so along these lines, this group, green grassroots election, emergency election protection is all about community organizing, right? We have the Georgia way we have, uh, the work being done in, uh, Wisconsin and other places in Ohio. And uh, so really, it is about breaking people free of these systems of control. And another one that, uh, Harvey, that you would love to hear about is that in LA 2020, someone was elected on public financing, uh, ousting a wealthy patron uh, incumbent on the city council with only $200,000 worth of money. And the reason was because small dollar donations were multiplied six times Turnout multiplied by five. People were engaged with their community. They weren't stuck on their right. screens. Hmm. They had a chance to uh, talk about the real issues and really reform their community. And they're they're gathering that momentum now. So well, that, that is, and, and Justin's right. That is what we've been about. And we're trying, um, uh, uh, Dr. Cardaris, to one of our main goals is to switch progressive political donations away from the Democratic Party. You know. And, and away from media buys uh, into grassroots organizing. So it's a, a, certainly a great allegory uh, for what you are doing. And um, and thank you for that, Justin. And thank you, Nancy Naparco. Uh, can't overestimate how great her skills are in, in the field. Of course, you can tell that she went to the University of Michigan, so that really you know makes a big a big plus. Go blue, uh, go blue. Steve Kaiser, then Wendy. Please. Everybody in this group, a couple of hundred members that come by now and then, need to see the great hack. Yeah, it is absolutely required viewing because it explains how the Republicans brilliantly outplayed the Democrats to put Donald Trump into office in 2016. And you got to remember, the, the great hack is about Cambridge Analytica, which was founded by, uh, co-founded by Steve Bannon, who really understands everything Dr. Cardaris says except that he endorses it i mean well, it was banyan he was he was at the core of this that's why he got that yes, position in cabinet as a strategic officer for a while and steve steve bannon's tactic by the way which he has stated in uh, uh dr cardaris we're not allowed to use four-letter words but he said his basic strategy is to flood the commons with doo-doo as lynn Feynman called it in other words to make the to make the social situation in our world as chaotic and ugly as possible to pave the way for a master of ugliness like Donald Trump. That is in 2020, the Democrats or the Republicans mobilized 10 million more voters over 2016. 
but the opposition mobilized 14 million more. And this is what we've got to have a focus on for next year. That no matter if they put Donald Trump in there, we have got to be able to mobilize, you know, probably 20 million people to make sure that he doesn't uh, right. return. And then we might we might get lucky and have Biden uh, be pushed out by his 20 shell corporations, in which he's getting this money paid to him for uh, for okay. influence peddling through his uh, through Hunter. And well, one okay. last thing is, you guys are talking about the effects of violence on individuals. You turn on a television and all channels, all 360 of them, have somebody blowing somebody else up. It's just nonstop violence all over the place. So it's no surprise that a 13-year-old decapitates somebody he doesn't like. Yeah. Okay, yes. Of, and, and beyond that, we have been drenched with media since World War II, and, and this is having profound effects. In no. all levels. I mean, okay. we probably okay. should have, wait, St. Harvey, I'm not done. Would you let me finish? Just we finish should probably quickly, have please. requirements on people to take meditation courses so they can get in contact with their own being. I mean, you've got to have a meditation practice or a deep prayer practice of some sort because you've got to have a pathway back to your essential self. They did the meditation in the penal system in India. They did a Vipassana meditation program for to reduce recidivism in India, and they found it had one of the most effective things was this meditation. Um, fe felony inmates in India had to do this Vipassana meditation, and it huge effect. I was going to say one of the big lessons with Cambridge Analytica was, you know, th that that breach of eighty six million uh, folks. Um, that was a simple uh, quiz to, to take on Facebook. That then was was breached where they used this innocent uh, quiz that, you, that people took on Facebook, not knowing that it was going to be corrupted and then sold. And they do this in the other ways to do data mining. Like they, uh, a few months back, there was a thing where people, they were asking you to post your picture from 10 years ago to today. And there was like this before and after um, game that people were playing on Facebook. Well, they were using that information to do facial recognition technology, to be able to see how people's faces change over time. And so they were putting it in the format of a game that people were playing on Facebook, but really the the underlying, the more nefarious purpose of it was military facial recognition. And they, they weren't stating that explicitly as the reason why they were getting all this information from millions of people posting their before and after pictures. Um, no, it's anyway. amazing. You, we're gonna have to have you back with Dr. Epstein um, and with uh, 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 Ken Stern from the Center of the Study of Hate. This is really fascinating, uh, Dr. Kozara. We, we have, um, oh, by the way, we're joined by Mimi German, who's going to be our resident poet. Uh, Mimi, I hope you can stick with us for a while. This is an absolutely fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, uh, um, uh, Mimi, uh, uh, we're going to defer now. I want to say Hedy Tripp, who we mentioned, uh, who's working on... Uh, the Attorney General of uh, Minnesota to join us. Well, here's a here's a philosophical question: Can you make it mandatory uh, to have meditation? <laughs> Seems like a contradiction in terms. But I have worked over the years with a guy um, whose name escapes me now. The prison there is a prison meditation project which has been going on for quite a few years. He was busted for dope and was in prison for quite a while. Um, and um, uh, his name will come to me. Uh, and uh, they have been very successful using meditation in prisons. Uh, so uh, at any rate, uh, Wendy Lederman, go mm -hmm. ahead, please. And then Lynn, Donald, and Dr. Nancy again. Go ahead. Wendy, you're, you're muted. Let's get you unmuted Thank you. here. Sorry, yeah. I, my signal dropped and I lost co -host. Go ahead, go ahead, yes. Thank you. Okay, go um, ahead. And I might have missed a little tiny bit, so I'm going to try to be really fast.
best because we really appreciate your time and everything that you're speaking with us about today. So um, a quick point on what um, Dr. Nancy was mentioning and something you had said made me think, you know, just like so many of these kids are also on psychotropic drugs that just totally messes with their minds and their emotional states. And what um, Dr. Nancy was saying about the reactionary chemicals, like another part to that is that, you know, we have receptors for these chemicals. So you actually become addicted to feeling stress because your body gets mm -hmm. used to receiving those chemicals that they're producing. So even when you're not under stress, your body's looking for thinking things to, to stress about. And so that in itself becomes habitual. Um, I thought of a um, video I saw not too long ago about a school. It was a school bus. It was like a CC camera and um, it was a full school bus. All these kids are on it and the driver fell asleep and only one kid, his parents didn't let him have a cell phone. He was the only one that even noticed the driver fell asleep and he was able to go pull the emergency brake and save the bus from like whatever. None oh, of the kids, no. they're all on their phone. And so that has me, this has me thinking like not only about situational awareness, um, the, we're talking about the stress hormones, like what about the depletion? Has it been studied oxytocin? Like are people at a loss of oxytocin? And then empathy, like you're saying, I mean, when it's like not only are these kids exposed to violence in a very detached manner, but they they don't even know in America, they weren't born here yet before we were at the longest war in American history. So we've just subconsciously export and accept this violence that that's just what we do. So if you just have any comments on like the lack of oxytocin, the lack of empathy, and then just that ability like the physical ability for human connection which we are hardwired for and we're not getting yeah. and how does that play out to how we treat each other as what's happening to humanity in the world as we witness genocide and everything thank yep. you so very much great thank points you. and questions very good question and steve kaiser thank you i didn't mean to rush you on but you know our time is over your questions were great steve brought up really good points dr right. Carter, let's go ahead i just want to say with what wendy said yeah they have done some research with so mirror neurons, right? So the development of mirror, mirror neurons, what, what are essentially, it's the neurophysiological correlate of our empathy. And so when we develop neuro, mirror neurons, those are the neurons that allow us to feel compassion for people. Those have been stunted developmentally with screen time, high impact screen time during those key developmental windows that kids are developing their sense of compassion for others. So it's not just the desensitization to violence of like Grand Theft Auto and violent video games and all the stuff we're talking about but we're developmentally stunting those really key human ingredients that you just talked about, about being empathic. Um, so a lot of the young people that I work with, they, I hate to say, present as sociopathic because they never develop that that window of, I, I can put myself in your shoes. That piece seems to be uh, one of the unfortunate, um, uh, I think unintended or, or maybe intended consequences of this whole dynamic that we're talking about. Wow, fantastic. Thank you for that. And thank you, Wendy, for your uh, excellent stuff. Uh, Lynn Feinerman, Donald Smith, Dr. Nancy, and Ellie Parisi. Go ahead, Lynn. Ask you unmute. There you go. Yeah. Um, I had another question. You know, a lot of this has to do with the actual um, the physical effect of being on screen, online, whatever. I'm wondering if there's any uh, a book that has talked about just the effects of radiation from your computer going into your eyes all the time and and or other you know just physical effects from what uh, from the elements that are being used to make the and lithium is you know toxic in the extreme and what happens to it 
when it is being uh, used and then we stare at it. Yeah, well, I, I know I know that Camila has spent quite a bit of, that's been the big focus of her work has been really talk about EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies and their impact on our bodies and our brains. Um, and, you know, the, the head of neurology at Cedars-Sinai talked about the microwaving effect that essentially our, our smartphone is like the, the frequency of a smartphone is like a, a little mini microwave. And he said that in takes about 30 to 40 minutes of if you have your phone next to your ear for it to begin to essentially microwave your neurons. And that's why we're seeing this huge spike in brain cancers and brain gliomas because, you know, people are putting these little microwaves next to their ears. People are putting laptops on their laps and we're seeing changes in you know, people's uh, fertility rates have gone down significantly. Now we also have endocrine disruptors in the environment that are not just that, but I think when you put them all together, we're creating significant damage and we know about 5G and and all of that. We're swimming in radiation. Um, we're the, the fish in water that doesn't even realize it's in water. Uh, we're awash in radiation. And then again, Camila is, is the, the, the lead person on a lot of these impacts i wrote i devoted a chapter of it in my book um and it's interesting because when, when i gave when i've given talks about this i remember giving us a talk to at villanova university 300 people in the audience and right before i started speaking the it was for the education psychology department but it was open to the public the the host of the talk came up to me right before i started speaking she said don't mention any of the radiation stuff no one wants to hear that <laughs> And I said, <laughs> okay, because I had a few slides devoted to it. So you could mention all the mental health stuff, but the radiation stuff, we're not ready for that. And, and it was Got interesting because I think she kind of embodied the societal viewpoint that that might be a bridge too far for a few people to begin to fully accept because it might be too overwhelming. I don't know. Well, you've got uh, Carl Grossman, your fellow Long Islander there, who's dealt with radiation from nuclear plants for uh, 50 years or so. As, well, sure. As yeah. <laughs> We we and so there. Well, we we saved you from quite a bit of radiation by by shutting keeping Shoreham shut. Uh, thank you for that. Okay, um, uh, Donald Smith, Doctor Nancy. My turn. Uh, no, Doctor Smith. Smith. Donald Smith was all right. Donald Smith and then Nancy, please. Donald Smith, real quick. Okay. Yes. Hi. So I have two points. One is when I you know when I grew up, uh, we spent all the time in front of the TV screen, in way too much time, and and TV was mostly uh, mindless, crappy content. I suppose the difference is that now it's more personalized would be the algorithms. And my second point is, I wonder if you can comment on the apparent prevalence of, of BDSM and dominant submission. And I don't know what the cause of it is. I try not to be judgmental, but I've heard like some people say, well, they're not, they, they can't get stimulated unless there's some sort of violence or some sort of yeah. pain. I don't, under, I don't understand. Maybe it's because of childhood trauma or child abuse. So please comment. Well, well the main, the, going back to your TV point, the one thing I talk about a lot is that the qualitative difference between those of us who grew up on television and modern screens is the interactive aspect of it. Modern screen time is you're an immersive interactive experience where we were passive viewers. When, you know, when you, you and I watched Starsky and Hutch growing up, we were watching a TV set, you know, in the living room, a few feet away from us. Now we're the our young people are in that experience and the ubiquity of it. Uh, we couldn't carry around that 30 inch black and white TV set in our back pocket. So ubiquity and interactive, the, the digital, the violence. And then I've worked with clients who can't get that violent imagery. It's on the continuous reel in their minds. Once, once, especially if it's age inappropriate, if you have a child that's been exposed to really graphic, uh, sexual violence, 
um, it really becomes almost imprinted in their heads and it be, it's extremely difficult clinically to work with that or to remove that. Um, and I do think that's a, that's a byproduct of being exposed to such a graphic violent imagery. They used to say that Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner were too violent, you know, the cartoons, but there was, there was no realism there. Now the level of realism, I think, makes it much more impactful and, and imprinting. Well, your, what is your book called, Dr. Carderas? I mean, uh, the original one was Glow Kids. That's now in 13 languages that looked at the clinical research on children. The most recent one, which looks at more social media, is Digital Madness, how social media is driving our mental health crisis. Amazing. Well, Dr. Nancy, you're on the front lines. Go ahead. Adding to that, uh, if I may answer, Donald, another another part of that, when I gave my grand rounds 20 years ago, I had access through my husband, clips of Popeye. I watched too much Popeye as a little kid. Popeye slithered down the road, walking along, whistling with all the trees going by for 21 seconds and nothing else happened. And we watched him sort of in real time. And when you juxtapose that to a clip of a baby Einstein video, or that I had a clip of the um, Pokemon that caused all the seizures in Japanese kids that year in uh, 2003, um, the, the cuts are immense. You know, it's just constant stress. Um, what's the good part of this? I will tell you there's one good thing about all the screen time. And that is that teen pregnancies are way down. <laughs> and um, another is that someone mentioned exercise. Uh, you know, by the way, the electromagnetic force, I know that's an issue, but it bothers me because it takes away the, the responsibility of turning off the screens for your kids. And I don't know how many people know this, but when you're sitting in front of a screen your uh, basal metabolic rate, the rate at which you you burn calories, is actually lower than sleeping. That means sleeping is more exercise than being in front of a screen. It actually freezes our body. And finally, I tell all my parents, when your kid says, I'm bored, your answer should always be, good, that's when your brain's going to work. Uh, and Nancy, I say that all the time. Boredom is the is it gives birth to creativity, right? That's yes. the handmaiden of creativity. The the thing about screen time and sleep, that was interesting to hear because now we have this whole generation of e-athletes, right? These gamers who are playing a sport called video game. And it's it's just so Orwellian to call this sedentary activity a sport with now full ride athletic scholarships or schools now that are giving full athletic scholarships to video gaming kids who are sitting in these in these womb-like chairs with energy drinks who don't move, they don't go to the bathroom. If you Google uh, adult diapers and World of Warcraft, there are whole chat rooms devoted to teenagers discussing which are the best adult diapers to wear while oh. gaming so they don't have to go to the bathroom. Um, it's incredible. And we call that a sport. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, of course, I grew up, I'm older than all of you, so I, my hero in TV was Maynard G. Krebs. Uh, the, <laughs> and he, was, he was the first hippie. And um, that's how I became who I became. Then the question is, what's your metabolism if you fall asleep in front of the television? It must <laughs> go really through the floor. As I did last night, by the way, I watched the Barbie. I could only take the Barbie movie and bits and pieces and put me right to sleep. So I don't know what that says about me. But anyway, uh, Ellie Parisi. And um, Mimi, I hope you can stay with us for a while. Mimi, Mimi, generally, we do want to hear your poetry, but 
uh, this is fen phenomenally interesting, as I hope you're finding it as well. Thank you. Um, uh, Mimi and I, by the way, had the uh, privilege of being on the Golden Rule, the peace boat, when it was rammed by a, po uh, uh, a, a peace boat that was rammed by a police boat. And she's going to tell us about that in a minute. Um, uh, Ellie Parisi, uh, please, for Dr. Cardaris. And we're, we're really grateful for your time. Doctor, uh, this is absolutely fascinating, and we will have you back uh, if you'll come. <laughs> I hope called, you. I will serve. Okay, thank you. Go ahead, Ellie. Absolutely, thank you. Um, I just had a couple of notes about uh, Dr. Epstein's research, specifically with the uh, well, we want, we want to stick bias. With, I know. Can, can we can we stick with um, Dr. Carderas? Because uh, Dr. Yeah, absolutely. Epstein, uh, Dr. Epstein is going to come back, uh, and okay. we'll bring. So we don't want to attack him if he's not here. Um, uh, uh, so can, can you Absolutely, talk? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, no, I just had a couple of notes, but, um, I can hold that until, um, later in the meeting. Um, well, do you want to uh, speak? In, no, he won't be back today. He'll be back next year. And I, uh, uh, yeah, this wasn't for uh, Dr. Epstein. This is just in general. Uh, please, it was yes, like kind go of, ahead. Go ahead, please. Sure. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that, um, I've been kind of looking into his research and, um, I actually reached out to him on my own kind of thing. Um, looking into specifically like how he was able to quantify whether there was any evidence of bias in search results. Um, and I really, I have a research background, so I kind of like knew what I was looking for, but I really couldn't find any sort of evidence. So I was um, kind of going to come to this group and ask for advice or help because um, I know that he has these claims that um, okay. there is a way to maybe measure um, bias in search results that is outside of just an organic ordering of search results. And I was not able to find any sort of, not even evidence, but any methodology to even be able to quantify this. You were um, you, you missed the earlier part of Dr. Carderas's uh, uh, um, uh, talk, and uh, let me ask Dr. Carderas: Have you seen uh, evidence of um, manipulation of political opinions by uh, Google and other other uh, major media providers? Yeah, I, I mean, again, I think as I try to stay as Switzerland-like to some degree as I can on this, because I think the as I said before, I think the, the end game, the goal is emotional reactivity, left or right. And, and so I think that there's been, you know, this may be unpopular on this side, but, you know, when even when we look at what some of uh, Elon Musk has done with formerly Twitter and has looked at, there's been claims by from uh, both sides of the political spectrum that there has been manipulation. And I think both sides have the capability. It's, it, it, it's not high-level... IT to be able to manipulate content. Um, and so I think these are tools in the toolbox of any uh, political player. Um, I don't know. I can't, I'm not going to uh, make believe that I can speak definitively whether it's been disproportionately in an, uh, either direction other than that we're being data mined, that information is being sold to the highest bidder and whoever that those players are, they, they're out there um, across the political spectrum. Well, I'm, um, um... Uh, Ellie, I don't know where you went, if you're still with us. Uh, the, the the great hack uh, makes a very strong case that um, um, uh, Cambridge Analytica had their hands on social media in a way that uh, helped Donald Trump get elected. And, mm -hmm. uh, and Dr. Epstein had a, a, you know, a, a various theses, which I, I wouldn't characterize, ex uh, 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 but I, I do want him to come back. I don't know what ha happened to Ellie. Maybe she left. Uh, but, I'm here. Uh, Oh, you are. So we did. We did not want to focus on Dr. Epstein, but uh, this this is an interesting 
case uh, Dr. Carderas makes uh, that, you know, the, the goal is not left or right. The goal is chaos, basically, <laughs> and dependency. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, and so I, I think I actually agree with that. Um, I, I do think that there should be like um, metrics in place to make sure that this tampering does not happen, because that's definitely something um, within the power of these like big tech corporations. Um, I think the question I had was more specifically, like if there was actually a way to measure how um, these results were biased and if they were biased by the tech industry or if they were just an algorithmic sorting. And I was kind of wondering if there was even a way to do that. I personally couldn't speak to that. That's that's not my my field of expertise. What what I will want to reiterate again, what I found troubling in doing some of the research that I was doing in terms of manipulation by big tech, what, you know, when we went through COVID, uh, when we went through COVID, you know, what what's troubling is whenever you have a finite number of gatekeepers controlling information. Um, and so, um, so we've, we've, we've seen that when we first went through COVID, there was everything from things, you know, when I was, a, when I was younger, we didn't really have the term yeah. disinformation, misinformation wasn't really in common usage. And all of a sudden fake news and misinformation, disinformation started becoming, uh, you know, common language, but everything from, um, lab leak theories and and who who's to determine what is that was what was troubling when people had different types of um, you know you had medical professionals who had opinions about uh everything from vaccines and therapeutics and and sources of 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 where covid originated from and you had people that were censoring and i know this is where there's sort of the great divide on this is if we're going to put some guardrails up in terms of the information, the content, who's the gatekeeper of that? How can we make sure that the gatekeepers don't put their finger on the scale in one direction or another and become good stewards of the truth? Because the truth, as we know, has some subjectivity to it. And and we saw that both in from the left and from the right. Um, we're finding out now that there were some emails and information that there was some intentionality about suppressing certain, going back to COVID again, certain information about lab leak theories that were that were uh people were stopped from getting that information because of certain gatekeepers that control the flow of information thank you and thank you ellie for that uh, quite brilliant i do want to say that um that what you raised and i'll go to camilla and then dave saltman and then maybe we'll let you go you've been fantastic with us uh and so patient the the issue of radiation uh, which I've been dealing with since 1974, uh, when the, uh, uh, when the, we started fighting nuclear power. People cannot handle atomic radiation in a discussion. And I just recently saw the most egregious um, uh, uh, offense against this discussion from none other than Oliver Stone. Uh, Oliver Stone, for God knows why, made a pro-nuclear movie. And in this movie, he said one of the most outrageous things that as a someone who's been with this issue for so long, he said there was no evidence that any children were harmed by radiation in, around Chernobyl. Hmm. And, and if anybody knows anything about what happened in Ukraine after Chernobyl, this is enough to make you want to pick up your computer and throw it across the room. And this came from Oliver Stone. And, and we've had this experience over the decades. People cannot handle discussions about atomic radiation. It just scares the heck out of people mm. on the most visceral level. So I want to confirm what the, what your experience and let you know that it's not out of the ordinary. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, uh, Camilla, please, and then Dave Saltman. Um, yeah, am I unmuted? Yeah, good. 
Um, yeah, I just wanted to say for um, to Ellie and anybody else, I put in the chat the link to Dr. Epstein's testimony last week to the Senate Judiciary Committee, two pages, and then a 480-page document that he submitted of written testimony, which includes many of his research published, peer-reviewed research studies. So I suggest when we talk about with him next time that you, Ellie, and any, everybody else interested um, read the research so we can have a constructive conversation. Yes, thank you for that. And I will say, I want to put in a reality warp here that also I always forget to ask for money. And uh, in this case, we do need uh, sm any small donations. We're actually as interested in the number of donations as in the, the size at this point. But if you can do um, um, uh, make donations to uh, the call, that would be very helpful. This is the last of the year. And we will use you know, the fact that you've donated to uh, go to uh, uh, people who may actually support the cause. So I, I appreciate that. And go to the uh, uh, GREEP website, grassrootsep.org, and uh, hit the donate button. Even if it's five, ten dollars, uh, it will help us uh, uh, get the kind of funding we really need. So thank you very much for that, um, uh, Dave Saltman. Um, 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 Dr. Carderis, Dave Saltman is a legendary. Uh, news person over the decades, and, uh, and we'll give him the last question. We, we've rubbed elbows. Heck of all the gin joints in the whole <laughs> <Right. laughs> show, right. watch hey, broadcast. Hi, how are you? Long time no see. Oh, good. Thank you. I have a question for you. We, you and I, have had this discussion before. It strikes me, and I know I'm going to get a storm of protest on this, but it seems to me that the the chief offender in this case, we may be focusing on the wrong villain. And correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that what you're describing is essentially what has been for the last, I don't know, 100 years, the holy grail of advertising. The issue here is not the tech companies, it's the fact that they are selling advertising, which becomes the poisonous material. It's there's where the uh, follow the money. That's where the money is. Do you agree with that or not? I'm I'm saying that what we need is to regulate advertising, not technical research. Well, I, I think in the sense that modern digital media is sort of the 3.0 Frankenstein child of you know the the original persuasion and advertising movement of the 1880s. You know, as it's grown up. And so it's gotten more sophisticated. So now it's a behavior modification 2.0 in ways that people feel much more troubled about. I think back in the day, we used to say a jingle that our children used to hear and couldn't get out of their heads was persuasive to have them buy a little McDonald's Happy Meal. And okay, problematic, but it wasn't quite as worm-like invasive into their brains and, and, and shaping. And so I guess we're talking about a matter of degree, right? So Because it is... Like you said, uh, advertising from the beginning has been about behavior modification, modifying your behavior to purchase a product. Well, this is what we're talking about, but we're talking about qualitatively. It's much more uh, pervasive, insidious, and and um, impacting in a from a mental health standpoint. I don't think that that jingle, that Happy Meal jingle, led to suicide and depression rates or led to some of the things. So I think you're right. It might be. That might be the original culprit, but I think the the arsenal that's being used now is so much so much more powerful and destructive, right? So we could say it's not weapons; bows and arrows were around, but now we've got nuclear weapons, and they're much more potentially destructive. Wow, 
uh, uh, Dr. Carderas, do you want to uh, just give us a quick wrap and then we're, we're going to let you go. And But we definitely want you back uh, next year to come on with Dr. Epstein. It would be a really amazing uh, piece of work to do that. But Well, I'm, I'm appreciative of the opportunity to come on this forum to speak because I think grassroots efforts have, in my experience over the last five to 10 years in fighting this battle with big tech, uh, I've seen that this has been the solution. It's been a ground up rather than the top bottom. Uh, we haven't found a legislative top-down solution, but we've what I've seen over the last few years is an awakening through the platforms like this where people have begun to, to awaken to what's really been happening and say here and no further. And, and, and that's really been the best way to affect change. So I'm appreciative of this opportunity, and I think more power to what you're doing and what this group is doing uh, in a variety of, of, uh, of settings. So, so thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you. And after all this, we still have 40 people with us. People uh, on this call seem to do, do have an attention span. Justin, I know, I know you want to jump in. Let me give us a couple minutes. We've got to let the good doctor go. And, um, uh, uh, uh thank you again. And thank you, Camilla, uh, very much for bringing, uh, You've brought, brought us great, great guests, and uh, we, we, we do really appreciate it. So, Doctor, I, I will read your book, um, and uh, uh, I want to, before, hopefully by the end of the year, so we can uh, I can be a little more informed. But um, uh, between you and Dr. Epstein, the testimony, uh, I have to change my history of the United States because, I, you know, I wrote a history of the United States and tried to deal with the end times here and just completely passed over the impacts of, uh, uh, of of this kind of electronic manipulation, which obviously, there's Steve Caruso, thank you. Digital madness there, how social media is driving our mental health crisis and how to restore our sanity. Um, uh, that would be a good one. Um, um, and, uh, you know, we're now at the point for the first time in American history, we really haven't a guy who's running for the White House, who is openly fascist, it's as if uh, fascism is his major issue. And, and, and he's selling fascism. And so as you're talking about uh, me media, the, the media manipulation, uh, its end is chaos. It's, it's selling mental chaos. This, this is really new in our history. And the guy who really understood it or began with it is Steve Bannon? He's very clear that he is selling chaos, and that's what that was what Cambridge Analytica was about. Yeah. The people for your for your assignments over the holidays here. We will not be meeting next week or the week after. They are Christmas and New Year's. Um, I hate to, you know, I'll read the book, but I hate to do this. But you know, I'm I'm uh, assigning two videos: uh, 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 the um, the Great Hack. And the digital dilemma, or the social dilemma. Social dilemma. These are incredibly powerful and important pieces. Harvey, Harvey, one of the things that I didn't mention that I point out in my book, Digital Madness, is I did kind of a deep dive into the psyches and psychology of some of the tech oligarchs. And because my question was, what's driving them? You know, is it just greed? Is it just money? Is it just more? You know, J.D. Rockefeller was once asked, you know, how much is enough money? And he said, just a little bit more. You know, and, and so I was wondering if that's what was driving this group of Rockefellers. And and what what I found was there's when you combine a God complex, right? Because all of these folks from Jeff Bezos on down have a God complex that they've solved with their with their tool, with their instrument of technology. 
um, they're, they're on a bit of an immortality quest. Um, if you look at where they've invested, if you look where Sar Sergey Brin and Larry Page are Google, they've invested in Calico, which is a biological life extension company. Their high priest is 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 a guy who wrote the book The Singularity. Um, oh my God, I'm drawing a, a blank on on um, Kurzweil. Uh, thank you, Ray Kurzweil. Um, ah, yes. And so when you Bill Gates at all. They are all big fans of Ray Kurzweil's belief that the singularity is the next phase of human evolution, where it's going to be the merger of humanity and this sort of AI cloud-like next wave, and 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 it's really it's really frightening. Uh, but it's in their own language. I mean, it's not something that's conspiratorial because they talk about very clearly about this next stage. Um, and my thing has been, what makes them think that AI wants to marry? A species like us, anyway, a, a flawed biological species. They think that we're going to be this perfect match. But anyway, well, I will, I will get you to roll your eyes by telling you, as a historian, and I will send you a PDF of my book of People's Spiral of U.S. History. This has this mentality has a very clear root in the Puritan ethic. The Puritans who came here were had a delusion of immortality, and they. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 basically viewed themselves as the chosen people. Yeah. And they, yeah. they, and uh, the, their, their leaders um, were considered divine and they had, and, and Rockefeller's statement about always needing more money is right out of the Puritan ethic because there is a belief. I get, I can't resist this. I'm sorry. Mimi, I uh, uh, thank you for your patience. Um, the, the Puritan ethic believed that money was a sign of divinity, that the more money you have, but it was more psychotic than that, hmm. because they believed that, totally believed in hell. Hell was a very tangible place to the Puritans who came to Boston in 1630 and set up basically a totalitarian state where mind control was a very big deal. You did not want to live in Boston in the 1600s when these guys were in charge. And the words all guys. And they believed that God decided when you were born if you went to heaven or hell, uh, or hell which they totally believed you did. And, um, and money, the, the possession of money was a sign that you might be going to heaven and might not be going to hell, but it was not a certainty. And so sure. God, God had the power to put you in hell even if you made all the money in the world, shy of $5. <laughs> so they were always trying to get more money, but they never had the security that if they did have more money, they were, they were not going to go to hell. Total psychotic belief. And it's at the core of American capitalism. So I'm not, you know, Zuckerberg, God help him, is Jewish, but whatever. But the, uh, but the bottom line is that uh, the, uh, the idea of seeking security with money is ingrained in the American ethic, but it's not sufficient. And so these guys are really, really crazy. And they would do anything for more money. They had no compunctions about killing Indians or doing whatever they had to do to get more money, but it was never enough. So yeah, there that, you go. That, that was fascinating. Zuckerberg was well, obsessed with Caesar, <laughs> by the way. You, Zuckerberg is obsessed so with Augustus Caesar, by the way, too. Named all his kids, various versions of August and Caesar. And at the end of each Facebook meeting, he used to scream out domination. And and on this honeymoon, they went to Rome, and he's obsessed fanatically with Caesar and power. Anyway, just aside, even though and, Which one and is his that? haircut. And his Who haircut. is that? Zuckerberg. Who, who, Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg. 
Yeah, he's obsessed oh, with Caesar. Well, there you go. Um, um, I'm obsessed with Caesar, but basically it's Caesar salad. So, uh, you know, what can I tell <laughs> Very you? Very funny, Harvey. A quick question. <laughs> Very quick, Eric. And then we got to. Uh, hey, uh, um, Kamala, I, I'm, I'd like to put together a little uh, conversation before um, the meeting with Epstein so that we can be familiar with the research. I just put my email address and a Calendly link. So, Kamala and, um, and Ellie. Um, as I understand it, Ellie really looked at his entire resume. There isn't a one study okay. that she was able to identify that actually says what he says. Now, she may just okay, be missing Okay, okay, Eric. So that, I just want to make sure that we understand okay. what the questions are. So, Camilla, can you make an appointment? Thanks so much. Okay, thank you, Eric. And thank you, Dr. Uh, 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 Cardaris. Yes. Is that a Greek name? Born in Athens, yes, sir. All right, very good. Thank you. Uh, all right. Uh, we we got to go. Justin, we'll get you after the hour, uh, after the top of the hour. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you, Dr. Cardaris. And um, we will, if, I, I hope you agree and uh, that you'll come back uh, in the new year. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Um, um, uh, and it was an amazing, amazing time uh, with him. Again, I do want to briefly ask if you can donate uh, just to get the numbers up, that would be very helpful. Just go to um, uh, whatever it is. What is our website? Uh, election Protection 2024.org. Hit the donate button and put in 50 cents or whatever you can do. We would greatly appreciate that. Uh, uh, Justin, to be courteous, very quickly. And then we're going to go to Mimi German, who has agreed to come on and read some poems for us. Go ahead. Wait, there. Go ahead, Justin. I want to connect the two spheres that you've been sharing, Harvey and uh, Dr. Cardaris, that there's a, a thread of all of this that goes from technology to religion. And so it's four news items I have for you. Very quickly. First off, uh, a jury just rebuked Google over its anti-competitive behavior. Good. And Sony needs to be convicted of uh, violating fiduciary duty because it is literally deleting things that it is sold to its customers right off their devices as a form of digital censorship. Okay. Uh, antitrust and uh, all this sort of thing comes into play. Okay. Why does this matter? SCOTUS Justice Powell in the 70s, he dismantled any enforceability of truth of advertising and any accountability of corporations for their messaging. That's why the whole thing about Section 230 and we claim to be neutral parties, but we're actually pushing these, right? So the third thing is... Uh, all of this comes down to a consolidation of money. And right now going through the courts is another Moore case, the same guy who wanted states to uh, say that we can decide what elections are regardless of what the people said. He now wants freedom from taxation on all of his stock market and uh, financial assets. Okay. And pushing the Supreme Court for that so that guys like okay. Harlan Crow can bring out the religious light, right saying, Donate to the church, not to the government, as a follow-on to the fall of places like Soviet Russia, uh, Cuba, and even uh, the takeover of Hong Kong by China. Okay, so finally, all a, a a right-wing thing from the past fifty years. Okay. To technologies, these advertisings, and basically tell people that they can destroy the government with their AR-15s instead of nuclear weapons. Okay, thank you, Justin. Very interesting. We appreciate that, and we will continue. Um, okay, we are just over the top of the hour. We have the wonderful Mimi German, who's just a really great human being. Uh, we met in Portland um, a few years ago, and we were on the uh, the peace ship, um, uh, which is called the Golden Rule. 
And we were riding through, and the, the fleet was in town. This was for Fleet Week. And I spoke at the Unitarian Church, and we were, I have never been on the water that close to an aircraft carrier. Those boats are really big. My God. Um, and uh, Amibi is also a poet and a great activist, very fierce. And um, uh, we, Mimi, if you, you're going to read some war poems about war, but if you could end on a, an upbeat note, uh, that would be very, very, very great. We have been uh, talking since, uh, feels like a year. This will be, by the way, our last uh, meeting of the year. Uh, we will uh, get back together the first Monday in January uh, after, after New Year's, and we will Welcome you. We'll also welcome you, by the way, Milo Reeson is my uh, uh, producer, a co-host on the California Solartopia show. That, And we will talk about Diablo Canyon, which you haven't done. Uh, uh, that'll be on Wednesday. Wednesday. You can go to kpfk.org and tune in and hear us then at five o'clock Pacific time. So Mimi, so great to see you. Let's unmute you here. That'll be helpful. Last okay. time I saw you, we were floating through uh, Portland Harbor. And, we were uh, getting getting rammed by the sheriff's boat department. Yes, we did. So yeah. um, you, you you want we haven't had any poetry, and I I read your poems. They're most they're about the war, and we we do need to do that. But if you can end us on a upbeat note, that would be terrific. And uh, we will uh, give you up uh, the last uh, ten minutes here. So please do. Okay, I probably won't need 10 minutes. And I wanted to say that I really appreciate it. And I feel awkward, actually, that it feels a little bit awkward coming in now with war poems about Israel and Gaza, because this conversation that you've been having was very interesting. And I'm glad that I at least got in when I did come into it. So thank you all for being so incredibly intelligent. It's nice to be in a room of thinking people. Um, so I've been writing since uh, the... Uh, since October 7th. Well, actually, I started writing two days later because I was in shock on October 7th with so many others of us. But I've been writing a poem a day um, called The War Poems. And um, boy, Harvey, finding an upbeat one will be interesting. So I'll just go for a couple of these and we'll see what happens. Um, so I'm just going to start with uh, War Poem 67. And the, the numbers that go with each poem are the number of days of the war uh, plus two days, because I didn't okay. start right away. So war poem 67, I step into the mikvah of memory, the sweet scented hills of mint of time surrounding the city, oh Yerushalayim. The quarries of stone that built the temple became cisterns to hold the holy waters of life. For a people to exist and to have suffered for so long in war, we must never forget love. Wow, that's a beautiful poem, Mimi. Thank you so much. Thank Very, you, that, That's upbeat enough for me. Upbeat <laughs> enough? Should I stop there then? Well, Don't this you... one's upbeat too, maybe. Go ahead, do one more, please. Okay, War Poem 56. To the apples in the orchard, please forgive that I have let you tumble, that I could not catch you when you fell into night. You rolled to the fences, then spoiled in darkness, your core softening in dreamlessness. My arms are not wide enough to become the tree upon which you turned sweet. My roots uproot under the skyless dome of grief. So clearly not. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Do another one if you got one, please. 
We have never, we haven't had poetry. Uh, uh, all the, this is the 161st thing. We've never had a poet. So please, oh, okay. Interesting. Well, thank you for um, having me on here. Please, beautiful. Uh, War Poem 69, the clothesline phrase from the weight of frost and frozen barbs. Rabbits scatter from fence post to tree, hiding from the great horns of owls. In the fog of clouds, coyotes hover, singing songs of catching prey. The sun is on the run, and in the house of war, the chairs are empty and the tables have been turned. Wow. Okay, we promised, you promised four, so one more, please. Oh, okay. <laughs> are you guys okay? With yes, I'm, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> okay. And we, we usually um, convene, we, we usually uh, go our separate ways uh, at 420. So uh, you can finish your fourth poem and then go light up. This and, and this one is for um, three of the hostages that were killed by so-called friendly fire. Uh, war poem number 68 for Yotan, Haim, and Samer. They waved a white flag yet perished in a deafening rain of what militaries call friendly fire. My heart thunders in barren tundra frozen in the clothespins of sorrow. Wow. Thank you so much for that. And I, I do want to mention also, uh, I have a relative in our, our family circle here who was born uh, with problems and uh, never really came out to a certain level, but was absolutely a gorgeous piece of humankind. And she passed away yesterday. And um, I just want to say goodbye to Judith. Uh, we hardly knew you, but we will absolutely miss you. And Mimi, thank you so much for that. We'll have you back. You can become a, a resident poet. We we need resident poets, for God's sake. So thank you for that. Uh, Myla, thank Myla Reese, and thank, thank you really. And uh, uh, Mimi, we've only seen each other once when we, I was in Portland together, but you're a presence and you're a fabulous human being. Thank you so much. Pardon uh, me, Harvey. You may not remember, but we met Mimi at the Grange gathering in San Luis Obispo. Oh, yes. When we were all gathered and we thought that we were going to shut Diablo right away. And it's so wonderful to see you, Mimi, and uh, you, your extraordinary poetry. Um, it was so much fun meeting you back then. And, um, and I hope you'll come back and be part of our gathering going forward. Well, we want to give you, you a, a commission. Uh, Mimi uh, uh, and Myla, and this is maybe you can read this. We would uh, like you to write a poem since that commemoration at the Grange in San Luis Obispo was in celebration of the uh, agreement that was supposed to shut the Abu Canyon. And Ga Gavin Newsom was a signee to that, and he has now betrayed us. And so maybe your commission, uh, if if you're willing, and come with a huge stipend, of course, um, to, <laughs> to write a poem about Gavin Newsom's betrayal at Diablo Canyon. This is serious stuff. This guy's on the front page of the LA Times. You know, they're checking out, can he be a president? He has clearly showed a paucity of spirit and honesty that is insupportable. So me, great reminding me of that, Myla. And if you're game, whenever you do it, plenty of time, whenever the spirit moves you, as we Quakers say, please, please do it. That's in one of my poems, Harvey, going to Quaker High School. So 
Yes, I'm going to take you up on it. Excellent. Excellent. Wonderful. Okay, does anyone else have anyone to say to, as a farewell to 2023? Um, uh, we will reconvene the first Monday in 24. I don't know what the date is. Uh, Michigan will have beaten uh, Alabama and will be headed towards the national championship, we hope. You <laughs> I won't ask you, Mimi, to write a fat poll about that. But nonetheless, Harvey, uh, it's going to be. Go ahead, please. That's going to be the eighth of January, Harvey. Eighth, January eighth. The we first Monday, I guess, is New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. Oh, yep. and for those of you who care, on December thirty-first, when you're out gallivanting, you will also be celebrating my seventy-eighth birthday. I was born on New Year's Eve in nineteen forty-five, and. <laughs> Got my father a tax deduction and daddy's I, little tax break. Yeah, I did. It, yes. And he promised my mother that he would not name me Harvey. And he did. And uh, what can I tell you, you know? Uh, but those of you who understand, you can call me Sluggo. And Ron Leonard, <laughs> you're with us. Uh, you you have uh, are brimming with information on, on energy. And we will talk about that uh, in the coming year. And thank you, Joel Siegel. Great to be. Um, great to have Joel Siegel with us uh, 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 through all this. And uh, you're just. I, I was very. I have to say, I was very proud as a parent here of all all 25 of you or less or whatever it is. But uh, of the quality of the discussion that we had with the good doctor today. He's obviously quite a genius, and we want to thank Camilla for having brought him to us. But uh, the 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 commentary and questions were beautiful. And uh, it really made me feel very comfortable and proud to be part of this uh, this operation. So anybody else, um, thank you again, Camilla. And uh, thank you all the rest yeah. of you. Uh, Marla, just hold, Marla, just hold for a second. I just want to thank you, Sluggo, for giving the um, pledge fund pitch. Oh, yeah. The donations. Always... And um, Steve Caruso, could you please jump on and tell everybody the website that they can donate to to keep us zooming in the new year grassrootsep.org forward slash donation singular just so harvey yeah. harvey yeah. my my father's name was also harvey and he had a a a premonition that i think uh, uh, uh goes to us all for the end of the year which is if you live long enough people will eventually come around to your way of thinking there you go and the truth and, and, will well out. And and if we if we stay on long enough, maybe some people will pitch in some donations. And can I can I just also acknowledge the extraordinary conversation between our Dr. Nancy Naparco and our guest today? I thought that it was really an exceptional conversation between the two of you. And I really appreciate what you had to say, Nancy. Well, Nancy is quite knowledgeable and quite brilliant, and uh, uh, it's great to have her on. And uh, at the end of this year, I do want to acknowledge four of the people that I came to know in Los Angeles who have left us, starting with Will Ryan, Nancy's fabulous partner, and um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Jerry Manpearl, who just left us, and the wonderful Ed Asner, mm -hmm. who's completely uh -huh. Lila Garrett. I moved to LA and met these four people, among others, and just such an honor and a privilege. I will give you a quick movie review also, then we'll go to Wendy. I did watch with Milo last night, uh, Barbie, the Barbie movie. I found it completely unwatchable and I combined sleep with TV 
there were some great lines in it, I have to say, but I did fall asleep a number of times. But go ahead and watch it. I found Oppenheimer way far superior, but that's just me. Uh, go ahead, Wendy, please. Thank you. Since you mentioned Ed Asner, I actually grew up watching him on syndicated uh, Mary Tyler Moore. And yeah, he reminded me a lot of my dad. So I appreciate, you know, just that vibe being here with you guys. Like I remember the first time I ever logged in. It's been like two and a half years now that I've been a part of the group. And I'm just so blessed and grateful for everybody on it, especially Harvey for having us and just all the wisdom and humor that you bring to us and certain members of the group, every, like every one of the members of the group, and then like all the diversity and all just your years of awesomeness that you bring. And so I just want to thank you all for making us what we are. And I'm thinking about all the things we would like to do next year with possibly doing more events, bigger events that um, can be like symposium and just expanding what we are inside. So I really would like to ask everybody if even like a cup of coffee or a drink or a meal for us that, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into this that you guys don't see. And after now we're going to be um, volunteering basically. So if everybody wouldn't mind just chipping in what you would pay for a coffee for sitting at a coffee shop for two and a half hours while we all put our hearts into this, it would be greatly, greatly appreciated. But I understand sometimes that's not feasible for some, but um, either way, I just want to thank everybody so much for um, just being here with us. And I look forward to another year of like being constructive, not just talking and, and complaining. Like I feel like we're actually coming to some solutions and being productive. And I'm so proud to be a part of it. And I just well, want to thank you. So much. Great to have you with us. I will mention one other dear departed friend, this shirt, which I got for $8 at a thrift shop on Martha's Vineyard. I always wear in honor of Abby Hoffman, uh, the great mm. activist who, uh, who was my good buddy and who actually wore a shirt like this. To tell you how far we've come, he wore a shirt like this on national TV. He was interviewed by Merv Griffin. And the network blacked him out for wearing a flag, American flag shirt. And so the vision on the screen was Merv Griffin here talking to a, a black half of the screen because they wouldn't show this shirt. <laughs> there you go. So I loved Abby Hoffman, and uh, this is in remembrance of him as well. Mike, we'll give you the last word for 2023. Sure, real, real quick. Um, when I think of Ed Asner, I think about how he had the number one rated show in the United States of America, and they took it away from him because he wouldn't back down on condemning the U.S. illegal actions in El Salvador. So he went out on top like the superstar he was. And uh, and so that's something right. to be admired. And also, I'm going to play um, Siskel to your Ebert and say the Barbie movie was wonderful. I loved <laughs> it. And so go see it. Thumbs up right, my, Thumbs my, down my. from Sluggo. And see us next week at the theater. Yes. <laughs> and see, and, us, um, see us in three weeks. Oh, uh, there he is. Here. Look at that. Oh, my God. There, Look there at that. Is. All right, everybody. I, I thought politically, by the way, the Barbie movie was excellent. I just couldn't stand all that pink. That's, that's just me. It was a lot of pink. <laughs> yeah. All right, you guys. No nukes, everybody. When we gather in the new year, there will be peace. Diablo will be shut. And Mimi will be poet laureate of the United States. Take care. Oh, my God. No mm -hmm. nukes. Take care. No nukes. Thank, you. thank you, Steve you Crusoe. Thank, thank you, Steve Crusoe. Thank you, Mike uh, and everybody. See you Thank next you, year. See you next year. See you next year. No nukes. No, no nukes. No nukes.